a new series at Monaco Bible Church, and it's entitled, It's Complicated, and we're going to begin to look at a number of issues, hot-button issues, if you will, that are in the uh, conversation either in our culture or within the church, and just try and tackle those, because uh, a lot of times some of these issues just don't have easy, pat answers, and they require a little bit more effort in terms of study or just conversation, and so I have the opportunity this week to um, talk about so I grew up in a Catholic church, and I have a picture of my first communion to prove it. Man, was I cute. That's me on the left and my twin brother on the right, and I did grow up in a Catholic church in New York on Long Island. Let me give you a little bit of my church background, and at the end of it, you'll realize that I must be schizophrenic in terms of my, uh, my church upbringing. I grew up in a Catholic church. And I attended when I met Ruth, who I'd later marry in high school. I met her, and then I began going to a conservative Baptist church, Merrick Baptist Church on Long Island. I went from there to the King's College in New York, a Christian liberal arts college, and that's where I accepted Christ as my Savior. And then from college, I went to Fort Worth, Texas, where I attended Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, affectionately known as Swibbits. For most students, I graduated there in 1988, which makes me the first and last former Catholic Puerto Rican New Yorker ever accepted to and graduated from a Southern Baptist seminary. <laughs> I, sh I need to call Mr. Guinness. I'm sure I have a place in the book. And then after seminary, I served in Baptist churches in Illinois and Michigan, and I've been part of Bible churches since 1999. So I'm tripolar, quadpolar, I don't know what you call it in terms of my own my own background. This is a picture of St. Raphael's Catholic Church, their sanctuary, their current sanctuary. This is not the building I grew up, grew up in, attending church in my childhood and on through high school. This was built, I think, in 2004, and um, I had the opportunity to attend Mass here. I brought my father to Mass. I was in New York a number of years ago. He had, had knee replacement surgery, and I went to encourage him and be with him, and I took him to Mass, and, and I brought my worship, I remember, and it was wonderful to be with my dad. And and um, yeah, in fact, I remember the priest there was, he gave what I would call a sermon instead of a short homily, and it was, it was right on. It was pretty interesting. But I was part of St. Raphael's parish of the Diocese of Rockville Center from childhood through high school. I was baptized and confirmed in the Catholic Church. This was the Christian context for me for many, many, many years. And uh, just right up front, I need you to know that this is not a Catholic bashing session, okay? Uh, I have a deep and abiding appreciation for my Catholic upbringing. I'm not saying it was all wonderful. There's a lot of struggle that came out of that as well. But I do appreciate what I learned and some of the things that I came to understand through that experience in that particular church on Long Island. In fact, I was back home um, earlier this year. And I went back to St. Raphael's, and I was walking around and thinking about my childhood and some of the things in that context. I came up with three things I wanted to share this morning that I took away from that. Just three, there's many more. Uh, in my Catholic upbringing, in that context of Christianity, I experienced a reverence for God. It was nurtured in that context. Uh, as I grew up, um, I learned about God. I had an appreciation that He did exist, and it was important to figure out how to follow Him. So I had this deep sense that God should be a part of life in some way. And uh, I wouldn't be standing here today were it not for that nascent early uh, experience of sensing, yes, God 
is real. I need to struggle to learn how to follow him. And then out of that experience, I would say I began to appreciate the spiritual reality and nature of life, that life had a spiritual dimension that needed to be developed and nurtured and, and understood and explored in, you know, in a good way. I got that through my Roman Catholic upbringing, that the spiritual aspect of life needs to be paid attention to and invested in. And then uh, finally, my love for church music and the arts was awakened in that context. I remember as a child singing the liturgy. I remember going to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. We often went there for um, Christmas and just being in awe of that architecture and space and the beauty of it. And even in my own little church in East Meadow, I could just remember moments growing up there that were just significant to me. I sang in what you could call a praise team in one of the masses on Sundays. A couple of guys played guitars and there were a bunch of singers and I began to develop a love for music and church music in that context. And so I just need you to know where I'm coming from. There are a lot of important things that I took from that experience that I have a deep and abiding appreciation for. Um, but that's not to say that there weren't some difficulties that were very real for me. And this morning, I want to just, in this series it's complicated, just discuss some things that we need to understand as a Protestant church what Roman Catholicism teaches and uh, some of the issues that we need to be aware of uh, when we think about Roman Catholicism, what we believe. So we can't talk about these things without talking about a little bit about church history. So I want us to go through a church history timeline. And it looks like this. The church begins, Pentecost, in Acts 2, 1517, the Reformation, and this weekend. That is our church timeline. Okay. <laughs> We have limited time, so that's all we can cover in the annals of church history. But I do want to connect these three because we stand in the line and teaching of the Reformation from 1517. Of course, the church began at... Oops, I hit the clicker. I'll go back, go back. Uh, the church began in Acts 2, and then what we believe here is connected to both of those points on the timeline. Now, there, there are uh, four things, four areas I want to identify. There's many more, but these four I want to identify in terms of from the beginning of the church to the time of the Reformation, even till now, that developed. And especially as we think about the Reformation in 1517, the canon, the clergy, the councils, and creeds, those four areas of the church developed and took on a life of their own in many aspects from the time the church began until 1517. So the canon, Scripture, uh, what books were to be included in the Bible that were deemed to be Scripture, and specifically the relationship that the Word of God, Scripture, has to the church and to how someone is saved. Okay? The relationship between Scripture, the church, and how someone is saved developed over the course of 1,500 years in our little church timeline here. The clergy, the idea of bishops, priests, popes, how the church is to be organized as an institution developed over the course of this span of time. Councils, the church leaders would meet from time to time to address heresies, to kind of codify and solidify what the church was to believe and practice. And over the course of history, there were many church councils, beginning in Acts 15, when they met to discuss, what are you going to do with these Gentile believers and the Mosaic law, you know? And then creeds, over the course of time, often out of the councils, creeds would develop to help new Christians understand what they were to believe, to battle heresy, and to teach church doctrine. 
Okay, so these four areas developed over the course of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they still have an effect and impact today. Now, throughout this little timeline of history, particularly as we think about getting into the Reformation, the church leadership structure and the resulting traditions created by church leaders and the sheer political and religious power of the church grew and grew and grew. And it took on a life of its own. So much so that the teachings of Jesus Christ and the authority of the scriptures became secondary to church tradition. And some of what developed between 33 AD and the Reformation was not good theologically speaking, not accurate, especially as we consider God's word. And there were those who saw the power, the wealth, and the teaching of the Roman church as being a walking away from the teachings of Jesus. And they wanted the church of Rome to be repaired, if you will. In fact, these were Catholics, the reformers, who said, we've got to repair. We have to fix some serious, substantial issues in the church. So by the time of the Reformation, this is what it looks like in terms of church tradition and the little word beneath there is scripture. Okay? It, I mean, it's very simplistic, but you can say by the time of the Reformation, church tradition... Apostolic tradition, the Roman church and its practices, its sacraments and all that stood high and above in preeminence and scripture was down here, okay? It's, it's simplistic, but it, I think it's accurate to say and it's a good summary of what, what we're talking about and how we understand Roman Catholicism and what the reformers were trying to do. So um, I want to take a look at Roman Catholic theology and teaching to help us understand how the Protestant church differs substantially from the church of Rome. Monica Bible Church is in the line of Protestant churches that has its origin in the Reformation. And these differences that I want to talk about today are not minor. These are not differences that you can say, well, let's come to a compromise. Or maybe it's not that important. No, these are substantial differences. And so before we look at some of those, I want to just read a quote that will help us kind of bring context into what we're talking about today when we think about these differences. Behavior among the people of God is defined by doctrinal beliefs. And doctrinal beliefs are rooted in some source of authority. The question of authority is basic. It is the foundation of any religious system. Roman Catholicism and Protestantism initially and fundamentally divide around the question of authority. Okay? Now we're going to look at this issue of authority as it's expressed in Roman Catholic theology. I'm going to come back to our timeline and talk about the Reformers and Protestantism. And we are a Protestant church here at Manuka Bible Church and how those differences uh, and what they mean and how they are defined and understood. Now, in your notes, um, I gave you just the five solas, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The back is blank. So I encourage you to take notes. Um, Write down questions. Let's say this is the beginning of our conversation. And if you would like to talk more about some of the issues that were raised today, I'd be happy to meet with you. Send me an email. Call me. I'd be glad to sit down and talk more about some of the things we're going to talk about today. But let's look and consider for a few moments the Roman church and what it teaches, especially as we're thinking about this issue of authority. How is a person made right with God? Under what authority are you going to decide how a person is made right with God? What are you going to submit to to answer the question, how am I justified?
before God. How am I made right before God? You and I must submit, we submit in some way to an authority that answers that question. And Roman Catholic theology teaches very specifically in how a person is made right with God. So I want to read from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You can find this publication online. It teaches Roman Catholic theology, practice, and tradition. So I want to read from the Catechism so we can clearly see what is being taught, some substantial issues that we need to be aware of, theologically speaking, that are of major importance and difference, okay? So this first section I'm going to read is talking about the church and the role the church has in answering the question, how is a person saved? How am I made right with God? Now, somebody count how many times you hear the two words, the church. How many times do you hear the phrase, the church, as I'm reading here, and then tell me how many times you hear it when I'm done. Okay, it is the church that believes first, and so bears, nourishes, and sustains my faith. Everywhere, it is the church that first confesses the Lord. With her and in her, we are won over and brought to confess, I believe. We believe. It is through the church that we receive faith and new life in Christ by baptism. Salvation comes from God alone. But because we receive the life of faith through the church, she is our mother. We believe the church as the mother of our new birth and not in the church as if she were the author of salvation. Because she is our mother, she is also our teacher in the faith. The church, the pillar and bulwark of truth, faithfully guards the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. She guards the memory of Christ's words. It is she who from generation to generation hands on the apostles confession of faith. How many times did I say the phrase of the church? Seven, Seven times. Okay, this is a small portion of, of the catechism, the Roman Catholic catechism, but you get the sense of what's being communicated here, don't you? The role that the church has in my faith. The church believes first. The church guards the words of truth, the words of Christ, it says in this particular section. The church is my mother, in the faith. It is the church and its tradition. That is the authority. This is how I am to be made right with God when I come under the authority of the church. How does this happen? How does this happen? R.C. Sproul summarizes it this way, and you can, on that little sheet, half sheet, if you don't have it now, take it on your way out. There's a couple of links and a reference to uh, a teaching by R.C. Sproul on Roman Catholicism that you will find very helpful. He says, salvation comes through the means of grace which are administered and governed by the institutional church. As he studied this, this is his summary statement on how someone is made right with God according to Roman Catholic theology. Justification is not by faith or trust in the word of God alone. Justification occurs primarily by means of the sacraments. Most importantly, the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of penance, which requires the function of a priest to perform. The question of authority and the relationship between the church and salvation 
It is the church of Rome as the one and only true church through which salvation comes according to Roman Catholic theology. Now, how does this happen? It is through the sacraments. And because of time, I just want to talk about a little bit about the sacrament of penance and what Roman Catholic theology teaches because this is a big difference and was a major issue at the time of the Reformation. Okay, so I want to talk about the sacrament of penance and briefly describe how this works. And man, this, I remember the sacrament of penance. I remember going to confession, okay, and moving into that box and the priest slid in the door and it was so awkward and it was, I was rather nervous. It was a time of fear for me and then leaving, you know, and yeah, that was one of the difficult things that I took from it. But let me talk about penance. There are three aspects to penance according to Roman Catholic theology. Contrition confession, and satisfaction. Now, the first two, in, in terms of the form of penance, what shape it takes, are fine. This idea of contrition, a broken and contrite heart, heart O oh God, you will not despise, uh, David writes in Psalm 51. So, yeah, you know, the scriptures call us to be broken over our sin before God, okay? To have genuine godly sorrow. The idea of confession, you know, confess your sins to one another. That's also in the scriptures, although... If I asked the father after I was done to, okay, father, now you confess your sins to me, he probably wouldn't have done that. <laughs> and then I'd be in big trouble, you know. So, yeah. But, you know, again, y- you, can, you can see where in terms of the scriptures and what it teaches, yes, we are to confess our sins to one another. Now, the third aspect, now this aspect of penance is a difficulty because number one, it does not appear in scripture. And number two, it falls underneath this idea that the church is to govern and decide and provide how I am to be made right with God. This idea of satisfaction. For the sacrament of penance to be complete, it is necessary to do works of satisfaction that will satisfy the demands of God's justice. Okay? This was within the teaching of the sacrament of penance. There are things I must do. So I left the confessional, went to the altar, and I knelt. And then I said, the prayers that the priest asked me to say. And then I was so glad because it was just, the whole thing was just over. <laughs> but let me tell you this, okay? I walked away from that experience with no assurance of salvation, no assurance that my sins were cleansed. I had no idea that if anything happened, I mean, this is my story, this is my testimony within that Christian context. There was nothing in my heart or in my mind that gave me a sense of cleansing, forgiveness, redemption, or being right with God, okay? And this, I'm talking as a person who's growing up in a Christian church beneath specific Christian theology. And within that context, I couldn't say to you that, oh yeah, I felt like my, I was cleansed and I was made right with God. It was a difficult experience for me. So you have this idea of satisfaction. Let me just say a couple of more things uh, about this idea of satisfaction. Uh, when you do these works, whether it's prayers or the giving of alms or whatever you are asked and encouraged to do, you are then uh, given merits. Merits are accrued to the person. And without merits, no matter how much faith and trust he or she has in the atonement of Jesus Christ, you cannot be justified. I must have the works of satisfaction to be made right with God. Okay, so you can see, and this is my story, my experience, the difficulty here. How many merits do I need? 
And I can go into way more detail about the treasury of merits. There were saints, martyrs, who had so much merit that they had more than they needed. So within the Catholic theology and tradition, there's a treasury of merits from which the Pope can draw from and give to the penitent one to get them out of purgatory, which is also not in the scriptures. Okay? Now, this is not a small matter. Not a small matter. And what I just read to you in the Catechism goes way back. Cyprian of Carthage. No man can have God as his father who is not the church as his mother. Outside the Catholic Church, there is no salvation. What I just read from the Catechism is a modern outworking of this belief that the Catholic Church, in terms of its theology, has not moved on. The authority of the church and church tradition, especially as it relates to how someone is saved, how someone is made right with God, has not changed in terms of the Roman Catholic view. Now, let's talk about another aspect of the difference between Roman Catholicism in terms of its theology and Protestantism, especially as we hear it and understand it and, and are, as a church in the line of it from the Reformation. I want to talk about now tradition, church tradition, and the scriptures, okay? Tradition, church tradition, and the scriptures. Again, I want to read from the Catechism so we're clear on what is being taught. And I, I, and I hope you heard my heart at the start of this. This is not Catholic bashing. This is just trying to build and bring Catholic theology under the authority of Scripture. What does Scripture teach? All right? Here is what the Catechism says. We're talking about tradition and Scripture. Sacred tradition and sacred Scripture, then, are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out of the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ, sacred tradition and sacred scripture. And then it goes on to say, read the scriptures within the living tradition of the whole church. Read the scriptures within the living tradition of the whole church. According to a saying of the church fathers, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records. For the church carries her tradition, carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's word. Okay? Read scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. Sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart, in the center and heart of church tradition, practice, and theology. Okay? So by the time we get to the um, Reformation, uh, we do have a situation uh, that looks like that slide previous, you know, church tradition and scripture. So going back to our um, original quote here that we began with in terms of of authority. Um, the question of authority from the Roman Catholic theology perspective is answered that the, the believer is to submit to the authority of the church, its sacraments, its tradition within which scripture was, to, even scripture was to be read. So everything was subservient to church tradition. Okay? And that's an issue of authority. 
And this is a substantial difference when it comes to Protestantism, what we believe as at Medical Bible Church, what Protestant believes all over the world, and what Roman Catholicism teaches. All right? So, uh, again, this is what was real by the time of the Reformation, and the Reformers said, no, we need to go back to this. Scripture over and above church tradition. Now, now remember, the Reformers were Catholics. They didn't, they didn't want to destroy the Catholic Church. They didn't want to de you know, demolish the Catholic Church. They simply wanted to say, look, we, we have investigated and searched and dove into God's Word, and we have to get back to that as our authority. And that's not to abolish all of church tradition. The Bible Church has a lot of traditions. But all church tradition, all church practice, you know, must be subservient and fall beneath the authority of Scripture and be instructed by the authority of Scripture. So the Reformers answered the question, how is a person made right with God in a very different way? And they answered that question based on their study of the Word of God, okay? But by the time of the Reformers, the church is an institution of salvation. The church teaches the true faith. The church effects sanctification through the sacraments. The church governs believers in accordance with ecclesiastical tradition. And the Reformers said, no, no. Let's go back to the Scriptures Let's repair this error in theology. And they saw it rightly. Led by Martin Luther, the reformers dove into Scripture and brought to light the essential and elemental teachings in the Bible regarding how someone is made right with God, how they are forgiven, and how to live the Christian life. And so we're going to take a look at the five solas that summarize the Reformation, sort of their creed, if you will, and uh, these come from the study of Scripture. We stand as a church in the line of, of the, uh, the Reformation. And uh, we answer this question based on the teachings of the Reformation. How is a person made right with God? The question of authority is answered in the following ways. Uh, one, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. The Word of God alone is our highest authority. Sola fide, faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ, not the sacraments, not obtaining merits, not trying to satisfy God in some way. Faith alone. Three, sola gratia, grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Four, solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And then number five, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone. This became the cry of the reformers and the call of the reformers to the Roman church to go back to what Scripture was teaching, to elevate the preeminence and prominence of Scripture above all things and to learn what the Scriptures say regarding how a person is to be right with God. So let's take a look at these just for a few moments as we uh, begin to wrap up. Sola Scriptura is the teaching that the inerrant scriptures, the Bible, is the sole source of written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience, can speak to our soul. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin 
and is the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. If something is not found in Scripture, it's not binding upon the believer. And the Reformers looked at the theology of Roman Catholicism and said, merit is not in the Scriptures. Saying so many prayers, praying to Mary, the idea of penance, that's not in there. Purgatory, that is not in the Scriptures. This is what the Scriptures teach. We want to come under the authority of Scripture. Are believers compelled to obey priests in matters of faith? The Reformers said no. Are believers compelled to adhere to the traditions and sacraments of the Roman church in matters of faith? The Reformers says no. In matters of faith, believers are compelled by no authority other than that of Scripture. There is no room for a mixture of history, tradition, and Scripture. And again, please hear me. That's not to say that there aren't wonderful aspects to tradition. In fact, I would challenge you, read some of the writings of the church fathers. You will find wonderful helps and encouragements. You're probably going to find some things that aren't in Scripture as well. Okay? But you evaluate all those things from the Word of God. Okay, going on then. We have sola fide, faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ, closely tied to grace alone. We are saved solely through faith in Jesus Christ because of God's grace and Christ's merit. Okay? We don't bring anything to this table of salvation, if you will. I can't bring my good works, whatever they are. I mean, just think of the psychology of this. When I was a young boy, 12, 13, I can remember laying down in bed deep in the night in terror and fear because I didn't know where I was going when I died. I can remember my heart pounding and my face squeezing with anguish as I tried to picture and see and understand what's going to happen to me when I die. Where am I going to go? And growing up in that Roman Catholic context, I'm just talking about my particular experience, I had no assurance, no understanding whatsoever about my eternal destiny. Why? I grew up in a Christian church. I grew up in the Church of Rome. And you would think after 12 or 13 years, you might have some understanding about your eternal destiny. I had none. Why? Because in that particular system of theology, it was not the scriptures that informed my thinking or helped my heart. It was the sacraments. It was the doing, the doing, the doing. I can remember one of my deep abiding memories of, of Mass is you get to this point in the liturgy where you say out loud, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. And then you took communion. Only no one ever said anything. Every week, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. And there was never a word coming back. So in terms of the psychology of this, you know, in my life, it was hard for me early on to understand and to accept this idea of grace, faith, and I simply trust in Christ because over the course of my experience in, under that particular theological system, I had no assurance of faith, no understanding of grace. I was always doing something, and I couldn't figure out if what I did worked. Okay? So this idea of grace alone, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Christ's righteousness is imputed. It's put into our account. It's only possible. It's the only possible satisfaction of God's justice. Our justification does not rest on any merit that's found in us. 
based on Christ's substitutionary atonement. The atoning sacrifice of Christ leads to righteousness being imputed into, into our account, into our lives. Okay, going on. Sola gratia. We were talking about this. We were saved by the grace of God alone. This was a central cry of the Reformation. They returned to the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Our righteous standing before God is imputed to us by grace only because of the work of Christ. Only because of the work of Jesus. In salvation, according to the word of God, we're rescued from God's wrath by his grace alone. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from the bondage of sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it is only by God's grace that this occurs. Salvation is granted to us by grace and grace alone. It is indeed amazing grace. Solus Christus, Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. The church over the course of centuries added many human achievements to Christ's work. So it was no longer possible to say beneath the system of Roman Catholic theology that salvation was entirely by Christ and his atonement. Now this was the most basic of all heresies that reformers said we... We cannot accept this as we dive into God's word, as we hold scripture as our authority. We cannot accept the idea that it is Christ plus merits. It is Christ plus church traditions. It is Christ plus me doing something in order to earn justification and be right with God. And they saw this clearly as well. In church tradition, it was the work of God plus our own righteousness. Solus Christus was formed to repudiate this error. It affirmed that salvation had been accomplished once and for all by Christ Jesus. It is finished. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification. And any teaching or gospel that doesn't proclaim this is no gospel at all. And finally, number five, kind of a summary statement. Soli Deo Gloria, we live for the glory of God alone. The Reformation reclaimed the scriptural teaching of the sovereignty of God in all areas of life, over every aspect of the believer's life. All of life is to be lived to the glory of God. They were trying to fight this notion of the clergy, popes, bishops, priests, and lay people. They developed a dichotomy that there was this holy order, this holy group, sect, if you will, and then there were lay people. And the reformer said, no, all of life, every aspect of the believer's life can glorify God and is to glorify God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We stand as a Protestant church in this line of teaching that is directly in opposition to Roman Catholic teaching on very key and important issues. Okay? This is the um, building of my home church as it stands now. This is the building where I attended Mass and had my Roman Catholic experiences, if you will. They um, built that new sanctuary, and I'm kind of miffed at them because they left the old sanctuary, and it's just sitting there. Why couldn't they do a food pantry or a clothing pantry? So it's empty. It's not used. And I was there earlier this year. I visited my folks, and I said to my dad, my dad is a believer. By the way, there are believers. There are true Christians within the Catholic Church because there are many within the Catholic Church who do believe that it is only in Christ that they are justified. My dad is one of them. My mom is one of them. 
my dad serves at St. Rayfield's, but I said, Dad, I got to go back. You know, I want to go back to the church. It's been so many years, and I just wanted to see it, even though it's been left like this. So I brought my camera, took some pictures. This is uh, looking towards the altar. Uh, you can see, obviously, it's unused, unkept. Uh, here's another view. You can see vines growing from the outside, and here's a stained glass window I remember looking out of. Um, <laughs> probably not paying attention. Literally just looking out the window. And, uh, yeah. So I was walking through this building, and uh, you know, I thought about uh, some of the things I mentioned earlier in terms of how much appreciation I have for the, the context of, of my own Christian upbringing uh, and remembered the questions and the unanswered questions in my life as well. And I remember Pastor Errol's teaching when he talks to us often about, uh, you know, that building is not the church. This building is not the church. This is just an address where the church arrives to worship, okay? If you trust in Christ as your Savior, if you believe what the Scriptures teach, that Christ alone can make you right with God uh, by God's grace and through faith, then you are the church. You are the visible representation of the church. And the church goes wherever you go, okay? But it was wonderful to be back there and to, to in, you know, at this stage in my life, looking back, bringing into context my understanding now of the authority of the scriptures and what I experienced there. But I'm so grateful I'm a part of this church. This is a picture of Monaco Bible Church last week. Restored, renewed, trust, faith, hope. This is from our Easter service last week. We had cardboard testimonies from some people from, um, from Celebrate Recovery. Now, I want to read from the Word of God. We're a Bible church, so I better read from the Word of God before we complete, right? I know this has been a lot of history, so thank you for putting up with all of that. But I, I think it's important that we understand, you know, there's been a church in Rome since the first century. Paul wrote the letter of Romans to the church at Rome. And God in His providence chose to evangelize the world through that church, all right? So, you know, we have to bring things into context. But there were some things that the church, key things in terms of its development that are not scriptural, not biblical. But I want to read from the book of Romans, chapter 3. And I want you to see how clear and how utterly beautiful and profoundly simple God presents how a person is to be made right with God. This is the word of God. This is the authority that this church comes underneath. This is all, this is the source of all we need to know and how to be made right with God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And then Paul writes, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. 
So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Now, how many times did you hear the church in that passage? How many times did you hear sacraments? How many times did you hear merit? How many times did you hear apostolic tradition? How many times did you hear the word faith? I am so grateful that I'm a part of this church, restored, renewed, trust, faith, and hope. I've gone from a frightened boy who could not ever imagine what those meant, from a frightened child who didn't know what Paul taught, to a place now where I know where I'm going. I'm not afraid to die because the assurance of salvation I have in Christ and Christ alone. And this is what we believe as a church, and I will stop anyone who bashes the Roman Catholic Church, but we can't have a conversation about substantial differences in theology that we need to pay attention to and understand and encourage our brothers and sisters in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us, O oh God, to cling to the word of God, to your promises, to your truth, and to the one and only Savior, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. For we lift up our eyes to him and to him alone. And as is so promised and so clearly stated in your word, we put our faith and trust in him and declare that it is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that makes us right. And this is so possible and only possibly because of your grace. Help us to sing about that and to celebrate Jesus, your word, and your great mercy expressed in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.